Well, good morning, my brothers and sisters. Uh, it's a, it's, thank you. It's a privilege to be with you again today in this manner. Um, but I'd be totally remiss if I didn't start off with some prayer. So uh, let's bow before the Lord, okay? Our great God, we worship you. You alone are worthy. You are the Almighty. Um, indeed, none of us is, is adequate for anything in this life that you don't provide strength, really. It's all about you. Uh, you hold the entire thing together. Um, oh Lord, I, I just am amazed that you are able to accomplish so much through such frail instruments as human beings. And uh, so, Lord, I offer myself to you this morning to be a conduit of your word. Uh, don't let me get in your way of the word you want to get to your people. Uh, Lord, prepare us for your message. Uh, help us to leave here a little closer to Jesus today than when we came, and uh, may your name be honored and glorified today. I pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Um, I, I call this message Truth and Tragedy Part 2 uh, because, as, as Courtney alluded, uh, I gave you the first part of it back in August, and for those of you who have no idea what we're talking about, uh, the, the, the background is that uh, last May, uh, we lost... Um, my eldest son, John, in a tragic vehicle accident. Uh, he was riding his motorcycle um, just one block through a neighborhood near his house, and uh, he was plowed by a car going way too fast. He, he had all the gear on, the, the jacket, the helmet, but it, it just didn't matter. The, the impact was too great. Um, he was resuscitated at the scene by a... A paramedic who happened to live there, but the uh, diffuse axonal injury was just too bad, and he never regained uh, responsiveness. So um, all, all of this is the context for uh, this message and the things that God's been teaching me through all of this. I, I gave you part one in August. This is basically a follow-up to that. Uh, it's going to have a lot of the same themes, actually, but with perhaps a little different slant on it, some additional information and, and ideas, some thoughts. Uh, but it's, it's definitely, I'm, I'm, I'm developing what uh, Barry Goodson, who, who preached a few weeks ago here, called uh, storm theology, all right? In the midst of the storm here, if you were there that day, you may recall he was uh, preaching out of Mark 4, and the scene was the disciples were in, in a boat with the Lord, and the Lord's sleeping in the back, and this big storm comes up, and, and the disciples were all frightened by the storm. Well, a, a lot of them were fishermen. They knew what a storm in, at the sea could, could mean. It was absolutely life-threatening. And so they wake up, Jesus, don't you care that we are perishing? Notice they had to wake him up, right? He's sleeping through the storm. He wasn't worried. Um, so then he calms the storm, and at that point, the disciples are truly terrified, right? Who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? So it's no small comfort that our Lord Jesus is Lord over storms too, right? Um, but it seems to me that a lot of times in this life, he doesn't just calm the storm at the moment. Um, he, he kind of chooses to carry us through it. It's more like uh, we're getting swamped and we're cold and soaking wet and exhausted and seasick, struggling to try and get the boat to shore in the storm, and he just makes sure that we don't sink. 
It's still exhausting. It's still hard work. It's still difficult. But we don't sink. He, he carries us through. So um, with that, let's jump in. Uh, so it's, I told you this last time, it's difficult hearing no from God. And if you may recall, if you were there, I told you that we had been praying fervently for God to restore our son to us. God created his brain in the womb, and he could recreate that brain in the hospital bed. But uh, it, it eventually became clear that God wasn't going to do that. He said no. And I told you then, and I'll remind you still now, it's even clearer to me that under such circumstances, the sovereign God owes sinning humans absolutely nothing. Now, I didn't spend much time in uh, Job back then in August. Spent a little time with it today, though, because that's the classic place where a lot of people go when tragedy's coming in on them, right? Uh, the, the backstory in Job, in case you're not uh, totally familiar with it, it's, it's the story of an Old Testament saint uh, ages ago. And he was a godly and upright man. And he was blessed of God. He had 10 sons and daughters. He had a lot of wealth, different flocks and herds and all kinds of stuff. But Job became kind of the object of a debate, a cosmic debate between God and Satan. And basically the idea was that Satan was saying, well, yeah, the only reason God is so, uh, or Job is following you so well is because you blessed him so much. So God gives Satan permission to say, go ahead, go ahead. You can light him up. You can kill his sons and daughters. You can take away his health. You can take away all of his wealth. And that's what happened. So, so there he is, lost everything, except his wife. That's all he had left, pretty much. And I, compared, I was comparing myself and preparing this message, myself, my situation, to Job's situation. Job had lost all ten of his children. And this was a great family. If you read the story, they... They actually liked each other. They, they hung out. They, they partied with, at each other's houses, okay? All, all ten gone. I've lost one. Job lost a fortune. Now, I don't necessarily have a fortune to lose, but I'm staying ahead of the bills. He lost everything. All of his herds, all of his livestock, all of the things that produced income for him, Gone. Okay, I have some aches and pains, some from old age, others from youthful indiscretion, but it's nothing like the abject misery that Job was experiencing. He had boils head to toe all over his body. One boil, from what I understand, never had one, but it's exceedingly painful. Imagine being covered in them. So the story goes on. Eventually, three of Job's friends show up, and for a week, they sit there with him in sackcloth and sackcloth and ashes saying nothing, which frankly, friends, is kind of appropriate at that time because truly there are no words, right? There are, really are no words. Uh, when, when somebody close to you or, or just a friend experiences something, uh, a tragic thing, just be with them, okay? Don't, don't try and come up with words. It's not going to work, but just be with them. Your presence, the look of concern in your eyes will speak volumes, Okay? Anyway, so eventually, Job breaks the silence by ruining the day he was even born. And, and what ensues is a debate between Job and his friends about what's going on. Why, what's the reason for this tragedy? And of course, none of them really get it right. Um, and eventually, 
God chimes in, right? In Job 38. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Uh oh. It's not good, right? You might have thought that when God showed up, He might have brought some reassurance or, or comfort or explanation or something. Say, Hey, Job, look. Hang in there, buddy. It's going to be okay. You're caught in a crossfire in this cosmic battle. We're going to work it out. But none of that. Job got none of that. And then God begins to examine Job with a series of rhetorical questions. In verse 4, he says, Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. So on top of everything else that happened to Job... Now he gets a little bit of this like divine tongue lashing, right? It goes on. God goes on for like four chapters, if you want to read about it, all of these questions about Leviathan and behemoth and all these things and making it rain and all this stuff that God does. So I'll tell you, what I think what happened here is that Job got a giant God-sized dose of perspective in his suffering, and I'm gaining perspective too. Um, The perspective I'm getting is that God is still really intense, Um, but he's gracious too. Uh, we, We see that in the story of Job. God allowed Satan to wreck this saint's life. Godly man, upstanding, honoring God, even killing all of his kids. Now, God went on to restore Job, right? Even gave him more children. But notice, he didn't bring the original ten back. They're still gone. That loss is still there for Job. So there's... there's Now, granted, it sounded like they were all godly. If they inherited any of Job's godliness, they likely went off to heaven when they were killed. And, and of course, one thing my, my brother Jeff um, reminded when we were going through the very, even the beginning stages of this, is we, want, we need to adjust our thinking so that we want heaven for John. See, because John's there, Job's kids are there, none of them would want to come back if they were given the chance, because it's way better <laughs> to be with, with the Lord, right? But for those of us who remain, the loss is still there. The loss was still there for Job. Um, I asked for the, uh, the, the music people were great today, by the way. Uh, excellent selections, Courtney. A lot of that was, plays very nicely into the theme of this. I specifically asked for Amazing Grace because that hymn has become increasingly special to us in these latter years. Um, ten years ago this month, we were singing it in my, to my father in his hospital room as he passed into glory. I mean, I think we were right about verse 3 when he went flatline. Um, As, as we were lowering my son's coffin, 
into the grave. The mother, mother of one of his good friends just spontaneously started singing it. It wasn't planned. She just did. It was just so appropriate, right? And we all just kind of joined in. And uh, so it has a special place for us. And it's just, but God's grace is amazing, right? Uh, let's, let's, uh, let's look at the first verse of that song. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Now, if you know anything about the guy who wrote this song, really was a wretch, right? This is a pretty wicked dude. He was a slave ship captain, right? That's what kind of guy this guy was. He even said of himself, he said, I sinned with a high hand. I made it my study to tempt and seduce others. Nice guy, huh? Now, until Jesus interrupted him, right? The rest of the stories, he went on to be an Anglican minister and helped uh, William Wilberforce end the slave trade in England, of all things, right? Complete turnaround. But let's consider another guy. Uh, this guy wrote much of the New Testament. He was commissioned by Christ himself uh, to be the greatest of the first century missionaries. Uh, it's the, the Apostle Paul. Let me show you what he, his assessment of himself was. Romans 7, chapter, or verse 24. Wretched man that I am, he says. Now, if, if you read the context, um, we won't take the time there. You can go do it later. I suggest that you do. But he's, he's, he's struggling. He's frustrated with the fact that he observes that the good things that he wants to do, he doesn't do those things. And then the bad things that he doesn't want to do, that's the stuff he tends to do. Frustrated, wretched man that I am. Who's going to deliver me from this body of death? Praise be to God through Jesus Christ, right? But, I mean, it makes me think, like, if the Apostle Paul is a wretch, where does that leave me? Hmm, yeah, okay. So, so another thing I'm learning is I'm learning a deeper humility, okay? And, and you can feel some of that in the, in the song that, songs that we were thinking, that Jesus must be lifted up and I must be put down. Um, I was recently told that I'm arrogant a few weeks ago. And, and the fact that I was offended at first to that statement <laughs> only proves the statement. Right? Right? And the, the Holy Spirit kind of quickly rolled in on me and reminded me that I had been contemplating, leading up to this sermon, Philippians chapter 2. Now, if you're not familiar with it, let me take you there. I have had memorized these verses ages ago, like in the 80s, I think, right? Um, but I still realize how far short I still seem to come of this. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Hmm. So what does this really look like? Um, I'm, I'm kind of thinking that at least, at a bare minimum, it involves just a simple deference to others. And I, I was reminded of the, uh, the old cartoon characters, the, the little chipmunks, Chip and Dale. 
I don't know if you remember, but I, I have this vivid memory of watching one episode where uh, they come upon like a, a doorway or some, a threshold, something they had to go through, and, and the one says, you first, and the other says, oh no, you first. No, no, I insist, you first. Wouldn't think of it, please, you first. And they go back and forth for a little while, and then eventually one of them says, well, why don't we go through together? Oh yes, let's. And they go through arm in arm and on their way. But wouldn't it be wonderful in this life if there was just a little bit more respect shown to each other that way, right? That, you know, letting the other uh, go first. Uh, Perhaps it involves cultivating an interest in things that interest others, just so you have a connection point. Um, I'm I'm finding that uh, my wife Diane and I need to do that in our marriage, because frankly, we don't have a lot in common, really. All right, I... My, I'm, a, I'm a roller coaster guy, and, and she's a merry-go-round girl. <laughs> my, my idea of a thrill is to take my 350Z to a racetrack and go tearing around as fast as I possibly can. <laughs> Her idea of a thrill is reading a, a good mis- mystery novel. Right? So we're working on that, right? We're, we're, we're trying to find some common ground. Of course, the ultimate example of this humility that we're talking about is the Lord Jesus himself. Read a little further in Philippians. It says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Let let that soak in just a little bit. I need to remind you who this is that we're talking about here. This is the person that Isaiah called everlasting father, mighty God. Paul in Colossians said, He is the agent of all creation, by whom and for whom everything was created, and in him everything consists. Moment by moment, it all holds together by the force of his will. Revelation, he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. This is the guy who humbled himself. So now, what, did it, what does it actually mean that he emptied himself? Let me give you a, a quote from uh, David Levy from uh, Friends of Israel. Uh, he talked about this emptying stuff because if you read the Gospels, he clearly didn't give up being God. Go back to the beginning. We were talking about how he calmed the storm, winds and waves. All of nature obeys him. He knew what people were thinking. He was omniscient. He, was, he showed his omnipotence. So he didn't just give up being God, he was still fully God, but also taking on manhood. But this is what uh, Levy says. So what happened when Christ emptied himself? He willingly set aside his rights and privileges as God, submitted to the Father, left the glory of heaven, and took on flesh, including a human nature with all its limitations, and surrendered completely to the Father's will. That's where we're trying to get. This Jesus, 
left all of his privileges, his prerogatives as God, and chose the Via Dolorosa, the way of suffering, the path of sorrows. Why? To put our need for redemption above his own comfort and well-being. Okay. Uh, Point number four. I told you before that trials test our faith. They also serve to refine our character. Um, in, in the storm theology lesson, again, back to Pastor Goodson, he referred to James chapter 1, verses 2 to 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And, and Barry noted that we develop long-suffering by suffering long. All right. Uh, the verse I like to key to on in, for this point is Romans 5, verses 3 to 4. We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Now, I will fully admit that in the midst of suffering, it still hurts, and I'm not so great at rejoicing all the time. Okay. But the reason we can have some amount of rejoicing or some sense of joy is because of the hope at the end of that uh, passage. When we are refined, that produces a hope. Um, My brother Jim is the uh, senior teaching pastor at uh, Reston Bible Church, and he he characterizes all of this kind of like this. He said, God could take your pain away, and you would be the same person just without the pain. And you might think, I'm good with that. But see, God isn't. Um, He usually doesn't simply remove the pain because he wants to make us better. He wants to make us more like Jesus. So he carries us through the pain. Uh, Last week, uh, Mr. K, George Kenyon Jewey, uh, used the biblical imagery of the potter, capital P, and the clay. And a lump of clay is formed into a vessel of some kind, but it's not really beautiful and useful until it goes through the furnace, right? So all of this is Jesus trying to get me to die to myself. Um, That doesn't come naturally, right? But he said in Luke chapter 9, verses 23 and 24, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. And there is an entire sermon just right there in those two verses. We don't have time, but just go there and meditate on that for a little while. Okay. Ultimately, we want to have this perspective expressed by Paul in Romans 8, verse 18. This is the New American Standard that I'm reading from. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. When we're in the midst of it, sometimes it is hard to have the perspective to to recognize the amazing glory that's coming. We don't really have... uh, the experience, we don't have a context to understand what it will be like. What my son currently knows, what Job's kids know now, we will know one day, and it will be amazing. 
Uh, you can get a glimpse of it in especially Revelation. And in fact, it's funny, sometimes as I read that, it seems like John's almost stumbling for words. It's too glorious, too amazing to even describe in human terms. We just don't have the context to understand. But the sufferings that we're enduring now just will not even begin to compare. It's not even in the same discussion, really. But it's hard when you're suffering at the moment to get that perspective. That's where we need to go, though. Okay, uh, point number five. I told you before that we don't understand now, and we still don't understand. But sometimes God gives us little glimpses, and we're thankful for that. Uh, The reason we don't understand is in Isaiah 55, and I shared this with you before, but I'll remind you, God says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Um, so, like, whatever God has planned, like I told you before, it really needs to be big to make it worth this, this pain, this, this uh, loss that we're enduring. And I need him to redeem it. But that's what God does best, right? God is ultimately a redeeming God. So, so to give you maybe a little, little glimpse, a little inkling maybe of what's going on, let me take you to uh, the sentencing hearing for the woman who killed my son. This went down in Spokane, Washington on December 15th. I've owed you a report of this for a long time since then, and I, I'm finally getting to it. Um, we went there not really even fully knowing what was, what was going to happen. I, we, we've never been to anything like this. And, uh, and, and so it was kind of stressful from that perspective. It was um, a little gut-wrenching because it's just digging up all of the experience again, right? But there's an opportunity in the proceedings to give a victim statement. And so we felt we needed to to do that, right? A, A victim statement, if you feel you've been victimized by whatever these circumstances are, you can come and have your day in court and and explain what that means to you. So we prepared one for the family, and I delivered it uh, that day. And uh, I didn't mince words. I, I told them about the deep pain of our devastating loss. I, I told them what manner of man my son was that we've lost, that, that was a loss to the community. But then, but then I, I, I turned to the woman and, uh, and even called her by name. I said, Jada, you need to know that we don't hate you. Despite all of this, we don't hate you. And I told her, the only way I can explain that is because of the transformative power of Jesus Christ in our lives. It doesn't make sense otherwise. And then I went on to give her essentially the gospel. I said, this same transforming power is available to you if you'll repent and turn to Jesus. And people were were crying. I couldn't see, but those who were watching via Zoom, they had uh, people Zoomed in, said the defense attorney was crying, people were crying. And then the woman, the defendant, had an opportunity to make a statement. And she was all tearful and remorseful and kind of owned the whole thing, full guilt for it. She said she would think of John every day. And that 
she would seek God to get her life sorted out. And then the judge jumps in uh, and tells his personal story about when he was 21, he lost his mother in a car wreck overseas, and he never actually got to confront the man who killed her. He never got that closure. And um, by all accounts, uh, we, we were told by several people, I said, this was truly singular. We've never seen a hearing go like this. They said, your victim statement, we've heard people kind of give a little bit of sort of forgiveness, but when you just laid it out there in all that grace, and uh, never seen one like that before. And they said, the defendant in these things almost never says anything. And if they do, it's just a very terse, not this tearful remorse and kind of owning all of that. And then they said, and the judge never injects their personal business into these things, never. And you got to understand, it's very interesting in the providence of God, that judge wasn't supposed to be the judge on this case that day. The, the transportation people were late getting the woman to the courthouse and the judge who was supposed to preside didn't have time in her calendar to, to uh, absorb that delay. So they scrambled around and found this guy. He was available. So there he was. And so even this judge, who wasn't even supposed to be involved, maybe got a little bit of healing that day. Um, so it was, it was a remarkable, gut-wrenching, beautiful day. And for all of you who were praying for us that day, I really thank you. I think, yeah, amen. I think it was, it was fantastic. It was, it was truly fantastic and uh, uh, draining, but amazing. And that's the way these things go, I think, right? And, and even afterward, they, they assign in cases like this a victim advocate, okay? And, and she was really wonderful. But she told us, she said, you, you have no idea the lives you've impacted here. And she said, even, even my own life. During COVID and everything, I kind of drifted away from the church and from God. And, so, and, and what you brought me back to center. You helped me realize I should have been leaning into God. And, and so even her spiritual life was renewed through all of this. So it, it's, just, it's just been an amazing thing uh, that we see how God is working in, in amazing ways. Um. I told you before that God provides strength when needed. He still does. Um, but I'm, I'm seeing it, it's kind of interesting the way it works. Uh, it's, it's like it's just enough. It's just enough strength for the moment. Um, it's not like I bound out of bed in the morning like Superman, I'm ready to... to... No, no, it's still a struggle to get out, of bed, get out of bed in the morning. But I do, eventually. And I function... And I'm here before you today. Uh, so, um, and, and it's all because of this. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Um, finally, I told you before that life is uncertain. When John left his house, he, he didn't know he had an appointment with destiny a block away. Life remains uncertain. Uh, just a week ago, I got word that an old friend of mine died in a single-engine plane crash near Percocet, Pennsylvania. Um, uh, 
This, this man was the flight instructor who literally taught me every practical thing I know about flying an airplane. He gave me my uh, primary training to get my private license. He followed up with, with me to get my complex aircraft endorsement. He took me through all the extensive training involved in an instrument rating. We, we spent dozens of hours in an airplane together, me and this guy. And um, he, was, he was the best uh, single engine, like light aircraft pilot, most experienced guy I knew. He had, he had to have thousands, maybe tens of thousands of hours in an airplane. Um, and, and if anybody could handle an in-flight emergency in an airplane on the planet, it's this guy. And understand that when we're in training scenarios, he's a flight instructor, he's doing this all the time, we are constantly assessing what do we do in an emergency. Like, he'd do things like this to you. We're flying along, doing whatever, and suddenly he just pulls the throttle. He says, okay, you just lost your engine. What are you going to do? And, and so we go through it, right? So, like, you're always looking for, where am I going to put this airplane if I lose power, if something happens? Looking for a field or whatever. And, uh, and so <laughs> we, we practice this stuff all the time, and he, he, he had it all down. And yet here we are. Something happened, and I'm stunned, and he's not with us anymore. Now the good news is he was a believer too. So he's hanging out with John and Jesus in heaven, right? And so that's a good thing. But uh, um, the point is that you need to be ready for eternity, because you don't know. That's what I told you last time. If you didn't listen to me then, listen to me now. There's no guarantee you get out of this building, let them make it home, let them get to tomorrow. So the point is this. In 2 Corinthians, I shared this before. I'll remind you again. Now is the day of salvation. If you have not repented of your sin and turned to Jesus as your Savior... You need to do that. Um, see, purchasing our redemption was the whole point of his trip to the cross. Remember in Philippians uh, 2.8, he went to the cross to purchase our salvation. Now, I want you... It, it, maybe you're there and you're not quite even sure what I'm talking about. If I haven't communicated, well, okay, come see me afterward. We'll sort through it and I'll do better, all right? Um, but don't, don't leave here with doubts about this, please, today. Okay. And then, and then I'll leave you with uh, the verse that I, I said last time is uh, quickly becoming my favorite uh, just because it uh, carries such stunning hope, right? I have said these things, this is Jesus talking, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. In the world, there's a lot of tribulation. Ask anybody living in the Ukraine right now. I'm going through it right now. There's lots of people, there's loss all over the place, there's pain and suffering. But even though it seems a lot of time like Satan is winning, it really does, doesn't it? I mean, there's just all kinds of stuff going on that's just 
despicable evil. But when we, we talked about it in, in the prep meeting before the service, that Jesus can't not win in the end, okay? Right? Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Whatever territory Satan seems to be gaining, uh, the Lord is just going to turn it around, turn it on its head, and make some greater good come out of it in the long run. We're not always around for that. We don't always see that. We don't always know how that plays out. But be assured that when it's all said and done, Jesus can't not win. The Almighty God must have the victory, right? Right. Let's, let's, let's give him the praise one more time. Hallelujah, God. And with that, I'll, I'll pray and I'll let you go. Our great, powerful God, we give you praise once again. We look forward to the ultimate victory. We thank you for providing the strength just to get through the difficulties of life in this fallen world. Lord, may we know your peace even when we're hurting, uh, Lord, in spite of the pain and suffering, or even through the pain and suffering, as is your specialty, redeem it all and make a greater good. Lord, I ask your blessing on the people as they go from here out into a difficult world. Make them up to the task. Help them to be good ambassadors for you because those in that lost, dying world need you in the most desperate way. They just don't even know it yet. So, Lord, help us to do well and to be your instruments. Uh, sharpen us for the task of whatever it is you have before us this week. And if it be your will, bring us back again next week. And, uh, Lord, we give you the praise and thank you for everything. In Christ's name, amen.